This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Kiesi. Yeah. All right. So let's start with uh, <laughs> the big one. The big one is the article that came out in the New England uh, this past week called Cerebral Oximetry Monitoring in Extremely Preterm Infants. Um, there's a lot of authors. First author is uh, Dr. Um, Henson. I don't really have the first name. It's a very international group. Um, and it's published in the New England Journal of Medicine. <clears throat> it's one of these big articles where you know it's a big article when the New England also adds like a research summary with it. So making my life easier, but I still reviewed the entire paper. So I'm not going to just read the research summary from the New England. So let's go over some of the background stuff. Um, we know that for ELBW infants, monitoring of cerebral oxygenation has been something that has uh, been talked about as a means of alerting us to um, issues going on with cerebral blood flow and risk of cerebral ischemia. And so um, <clears throat> there's this idea that if we had this information, maybe we could intervene um, very early on in the process of um, cerebral pathologies and not have to wait until you get the result of an ultrasound where things have really deteriorated. Now, the SAFE BOOSC2 trial, uh, which was um, published some time ago, and we'll put that as well on the on the on the episode page, looked at 166 extremely preterm infants who underwent randomization to receive uh, treatment guided by cerebral oximetry during the first 72 hours after birth, or they were randomized to um, a blinded intervention, which was interesting, meaning they, they were in the safe boost two, both the control and the intervention group were hooked up to uh, NEARS, to near infrared spectroscopy, but the control, the clinicians were blinded to the number. Now in that trial, the occurrence of what was defined as the primary outcome, which was cerebral hypoxia and hyperoxia, was reduced by a staggering 58% in the cerebral oximetry group, primarily owing to a reduction, not in really hyperoxia, but mostly hypoxia. So you can review the you can review that study, and that obviously was a paper that gave a lot of promise and, and optimism for the utilization of NEARS. Now the question that um, the Safe Boost 3 trial is asking is: can treatment guided by cerebral oximetry in the first 72 hours after birth? result in lower incidence of death or survival um, with uh, severe brain injury at 36 weeks postmenstrual age compared to routine care. So um, I think this is where we see the evolution of the research methodology, right? Where you're looking at cerebral hypoxia, cerebral hyperoxia in safe boost two, but now you're sort of asking like, all right, like things how does that really translate into mortality or severe brain injury? So the study design, um, obviously, as you can imagine, since it was published in the New England, it's a very robust study. It was pragmatic. It was a superiority open-label multinational phase three randomized clinical trial. Babies who were considered to be eligible were infants who were born before 28 weeks of gestation, who um, obviously were full codes where resuscitation was attempted and on whom near-infrared spectroscopy could be uh, implemented within six hours of life. The infants were randomly assigned in a one-to-one -one ratio to either receive cerebral oximetry or usual care. The um, intervention, and I think that's important, is obviously um, being connected to cerebral oximetry monitoring, 
for the first 72 hours after birth. That will be a, a big subject of discussion, obviously, because anytime you assign a time point to an intervention, people will say, well, what if you did it longer, what if you did it longer, whatever. So um, that will be something that we can discuss afterwards. Now, what was very interesting is that I think always dig through the supplemental material. I'm going to post this on Twitter, but like they had a whole intervention, right? The thing that you wonder is, oh, how, how do we use cerebral oximetry? And in the methods, they say, well, if an infant's cerebral oxygenation level dropped below the threshold for hypoxia, then treatment was considered. And intervention um, were based on the safe BOOSC two, uh, 3 treatment guideline, which uh, usually include um, uh, potential clinical intervention for the purpose of normalizing uh, cerebral oxygenation. So now, if you do go in the, in the supplemental material, I think, first of all, that what was that threshold? That threshold was 55%. But then you say, okay, so what, it, what was that? So there's like a whole algorithm on how to approach babies who are uh, having their threshold go below 55%. And so then I'm going to go through this because it's very valuable. They had three, three items. And they said either there's an issue with cardiovascular status, oxygen transport, or respiratory status. Cardiovascular status was then divided into either an echographic assessment where you would look at cardiac output, SVC flow, and you would consider maybe volume expansion, maybe inotropes, maybe decreasing um, the MAP, or you would found a, a significant PDA and you would consider treatment. In terms of clinical assessment, they would look at blood pressures, they would look at uh, lactate, urine output, and so on, and they would then consider potentially volume expansion, maybe vasopressors, um, et cetera. What if it was an issue of oxygen transport? They would look at hemoglobin and consider transfusion. What if it was a respiratory status issue? Then they would look at um, maybe increasing the amount of oxygen, increasing FiO2, increasing the MAP. Um, and if the PCO2 was low, then maybe decreasing the minute ventilation. So if you're trying like we are right now to implement NIRS uh, in your unit and you're looking at how to approach abnormal values, figure S1 in the supplemental material. Um, the outcomes were assessed at 36 weeks postmenstrual age or the time of death or discharge to home, whichever came first. Severe brain injury was assessed by means of review of all cerebral ultrasound scans and imaging reports available in the infant's clinical record. The primary outcome was a composite of death or survival with severe brain injury. And severe brain injury was defined as either uh, severe IVH, cystic PVL, post-hemorrhagic ventricular dilation, cerebellar hemorrhage, or cerebral atrophy. They also had some exploratory outcomes, which were death at any time up to 36 weeks or BPD, and the following outcomes that occurred at any time up to 36 weeks, which were death or severe ROP, death or late-onset sepsis, death or um, neck stage 2 slash uh, maybe uh, intestinal perforation. They also looked at some, some uh, adverse reactions to the uh, use of NIRS, which included skin damage, physical injury, and so on and so forth. Now, interestingly enough, um, you can obviously review the, the statistical analysis, but this power of this, the power calculation of the study was done in order to achieve a uh, to detect a 22% relative risk reduction, which I thought was very ambitious, obviously. Um, and the analysis was done in the, uh, on, in the, on, on an intention-to-treat principle. So the results are unfortunately a bit disappointing. If you were hopeful that NIRS was um, the next big thing, um, a total of 1,601 infants underwent randomization between June 2019 and December 2021. 
785 were assigned to the oximetry group, 816 to the usual care group across 70 sites in Asia, Europe, and North America. Now, the key result is that at 36 weeks postmenstrual age, uh, 35% in the oximetry group and 34% in the usual care group had died or survived with a severe brain injury. And that obviously was not statistically significant. Um, we can look at table two in the um, in the results section, right? And we can look, interestingly enough, at the components of the primary outcome. They were also not very different. So when you're looking at death alone, it was 21% in the cerebral oximetry group versus 19.8% in the usual care group. Looking at severe brain injury alone, also 24.2% versus 23.6%. So it, it wasn't like the composite outcome really favored one or the other. Both of them were actually quite similar. Uh, the incidences of exploratory outcome events did not materially differ between the oximetry and usual care groups. So looking at death or BPD, that was also similar, 66 versus 68%. Uh, death or ROP, 30% versus 28%. Death or late onset sepsis, 73% versus 74%. Um, death or necrotizing enterocolitis, 30% versus 25.9%. Now, in terms of the uh, adverse events, in the oximetry group, one or more serious event, adverse events occurred uh, in about 85% of infants as compared with 86% in the usual care group. There were no appreciable differences between the oximetry and usual care groups in the incidence of uh, serious adverse events. The conclusions of the conclusions, sorry, of the trial are that um, in extremely preterm infants, treatment guided by cerebral oximetry monitoring in the first seventy-two hours after birth did not lead to a lower incidence of death or severe brain injury at thirty-six weeks compared to usual care. Um, there's definitely a lot of disappointment, especially considering the promising results of the Safe Boost Two trial. There are still some lingering questions that are left to be answered. For example, is 72 hours enough time to actually uh, have a meaningful effect? Could you say that, I mean, that's something that in our division, right, one of our colleagues was mentioning, maybe maybe longer periods of time could be, um, could be more um, valuable. Also, um, the idea that the NIRS the, the um, uh, oximetry was being uh, hooked up within six hours and that... Um, could that leave enough time for um, eventful things to happen without you intervening on them? That's also possible. Um, and then obviously um, the idea that the imaging imaging reviewed was obviously dependent on whatever the units were doing. So there were no there were no consistent recommendations as to when to image the brain, and there were no consistent recommendations on the use of ultrasounds versus MRI. Um, they basically reviewed every image that they possibly could that were gathered during the hospitalization. I'm not saying these are limitations. I'm saying these are questions that I think in the future I can foresee other groups maybe tweaking and trying to study this. But other than that, um, yeah, an interesting paper that uh, that's going to lead to a lot of conversation, especially as I think um, a lot of our people in our community were very hopeful about NIRS. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think they gave us as much information as they could. I think the algorithm was very useful because I think that's something we're all saying like, okay, we have these values that we 
think are the threshold values. We're not even sure they're the threshold values, right? But we're starting to get more and more data with larger and larger cohorts looking at what is the what are the typical values. And then you say, but like, so then what do we do? Right. Um, but but potentially, you know, I, I think potentially, you know, if you haven't seen those found those findings on your other lab, you know, data or clinical data that potentially you know, the NEARS data will give you some information sooner. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, one of the one of the strengths of the study was how, you know, t- a ton of international sites. And I think that makes it harder to, to do oversight, right, at any, you know, mm-hmm. at any site. Like, what was the compliance to the algorithm? I don't know. Who knows? Um, but I think and, the alg- the algorithm does I think answer. So that's the other thing was that the the compliance was a big deal. And the other component that I left out was that um, they did provide training. So they they did try their best to give people as much education as possible right. on the device on the algorithm, so that people would say, well, you know, they're doing this trial in my unit, and I don't know what they want from me. No, they they, <laughs> they were able to actually provide as much information, which was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, and the only thing I think about with um with NEARS in general and our reactivity to NEARS is, you know, once you see those changes, once you've met the threshold, right, potentially damage is already done. It's already happening, right? Mm. Like say what we see with like ischemia and HIE, right? So then, then, I mean, we're potentially preventing more damage, maybe, I don't know, but I, I wonder if instead of using absolute thresholds, they were using, you know, the trend, right? Change from baseline or how we know the, it's the, it's not even the absolute of fluctuations, but potentially how quickly you do these swings. So I, I don't know. I think there's still, I think there's still hope. I'm still hopeful. I'm disappointed by the, the outcomes, but I'm, I hope that people won't just give up on studying it altogether. I think Absolutely. this is just a jumping off point. Absolutely. And then, and then, like we said, could the cutoff have been the wrong one? Is 55% mm. not the right cutoff? Could maybe th- this was too low, right? Mm-hmm. And all these, like I said, I'm not here to disparage the study by any stretch. This is a phenomenally mm-hmm. well-crafted study. It's just, I think these are the things you're going to start seeing when people are going to re-explore this idea and trying to see if uh, there's really, really nothing to be gained there. I think that's going to be the interesting part. Yeah. So, Yeah. <laughs> This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.